Good morning, everyone. I feel like I need to get this out of my system. It's coming home. It's coming home. It's coming. No, sorry. That's the first and last. No, it's not the last. I will mention it again later. Um, It's exciting, though, isn't it, eh? Even if you don't like football that much. Debbie almost, almost showed a flicker of interest at one stage. Uh, which was which is progress, you know. She's been married to me for 14 years and still can't get her into football, I'm afraid. So good morning. Uh, if you're here for the first time, special welcome to you. It's great to have you with us. So we are in our series on the Gospel of Mark. And we've been looking at this down-to-earth Jesus. And in the first, uh, the first sort of look at it, Matt took us through the first chapter and we looked at how Mark kind of presents a Jesus where we have to decide, is he real or is he fake? Is, it, is he who he says he is? Or is he some imposter, some, some fake, some fraud? And then last week, Chris looked at chapter 2. And we looked at Jesus' amazing teaching, uh, looked, looked at a few stories of how Jesus brought a new way. He looked at some of the, the old... Jewish ways of thinking, the old cultural practices at the time, and Jesus presented something absolutely opposite, something radical, something that people never heard before that they weren't expecting. And we're actually going to look, I'm going to skip a tiny bit, we will come back to it. There's a story at the end of chapter 2 and one at the start of chapter 3, all about Sabbath, and we will come back to do that another time. But what I really wanted to speak on today is chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. And the reason I wanted to speak on it uh, actually comes out of Chris referenced this leadership conference that we went to a couple of weeks ago, a New Ground event, and we heard some brilliant, brilliant teachers. One of those conferences you come back just buzzing, but also very challenged and inspired, and you look, and you almost want to reevaluate and look at look at church again and look at the thing. Oh, how how can we how can we be, just get this better? <laughs> not not that anything we're doing is terrible or simple, but just actually how can we shape this so it's more and more like the church that Jesus envisaged and, and, and demonstrated for us. And I think some of the stuff we were taught, especially I'm going to borrow heavily from Phil Moore this morning. Uh, Phil Moore gave a brilliant talk, which I recommend you download and listen to, but he also did a discipleship seminar as well. And some of the stuff he shared, I just think it's got massive implications, not just for us, but for any church. I mean, I sent, I've sent that talk to goodness knows how many people that I know in other churches, even in other families of churches, and said, listen to this. This is such good teaching, so pivotal. And actually, these two couple of stories I want to speak on today, they're right in line with, you know, they really um, link to what Phil was teaching. So I just wanted to really bring something of that this morning. It might get a bit challenging this morning. I'm not going uh, to lie. I felt a little bit of attack this week. I felt like I was going to bring a message that some people might not want to hear or some people might be a little bit prickly about. Um, and I've, I've had various attacks this week of just feel, like just feeling like this is wrong, you shouldn't be bringing this, or you should be really careful, or you're going to upset people. So I'm just very aware of the weight of it this morning. But please stick with me. I really hope that what I bring will be helpful and something that will be formative and shaping for us as a church going forward. So what we're going to look at is these two quite short stories. We're going to look at one at a time. So if you want to turn uh, to Mark, and it's chapter 3, verse 7 to 12, try something a bit different this morning. Let's all read this together, okay? Just to get everyone engaged. It often helps if you read this out loud. Uh, I feel like you, you pay more attention to the scripture rather than me just reading it to you. So if you want to follow it on the screen, we'll follow it on the screen. But let's just read this out loud together, okay? Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, 
many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Okay, good reading, everyone. So what we've got here, we've got Jesus being pursued by crowds. And that's probably not surprising. If you think back to what we've heard in these first couple of chapters, we've seen Jesus starting to do some absolutely incredible things. He is a controversial, inspirational figure, and he's gaining a reputation for doing and saying some incredible things. And so people, as we see here, flocked from all over. They all want a piece of this Jesus. There's big crowds witnessing amazing miracles. And Joe, for many, I think, this is the model of Christian success. I think a lot of people think this is what church should look like. The power of God on display and people flocking to witness it in numbers. And you know, actually, Christian success, church success, has often become measured by that ability to draw a crowd. That's uncomfortable, but I think it's true. If you go to any leadership conference and listen to church leaders talking, you'll find it. And I'm very guilty of this. I was guilty of this at the church leaders conference I went to two weeks ago. Often, the question asked straight out, outright is, so how many people are you gathering on a Sunday morning? How many people have you got coming to your church? That's what everyone wants to know. And sometimes it's a bit more subtle than that. It's like people almost know, I know I'm not supposed to ask about the numbers. It's not about the numbers, but I really want to know. So you say something like, so what, what do Sunday mornings look like for you? And the answer we always give is, well, we gather about 50 to 100 people. And we always answer in numbers. It feels like it's a numbers game. And all too often, I think our ministry and our churches are judged as successful or not by bums on seats. And as leaders, I was talking to some guys this morning, we get a bit twitchy in these summer months when people start to disappear on holiday and our numbers start to drop a bit. And we start to think, ooh, there's less people than there were a couple of weeks ago. Are people drifting away? Are we doing something wrong? Is something, is something going not quite right? What have we done wrong? Why are we losing people? We start to get a little bit jittery. And then we get excited when September comes and everyone's back from the holidays and everyone pours back into church. Oh, we're doing great. The numbers are up. Fantastic. God's doing something. You know, when it comes to church, it seems, sadly, I think, that numbers matter. And I think it mattered to Jesus' as followers because in the Gospels, all four of the Gospel writers are very, very keen to tell us about the crowds. Just in, just in the book of Mark alone, there's 13 separate mentions of crowds numbers flocking to Jesus. I think in Matthew, it's an even bigger number. It's like 50 different times Matthew will use this word crowd or crowds to talk about the numbers of people that were following Jesus. But you know what? If the goal of ministry, if the goal of church is simply to draw a crowd that lasts and that becomes a strong, vibrant church, then I'm going to say something a bit shocking. I think Jesus failed. I think Jesus didn't do very well at that. 
Because 50 days after Jesus died, 50 days, all of his followers, all the people, he'd ministered for three years. He'd done and seen and heard. They'd seen amazing things. They'd seen him heal. They'd seen him teach. They'd seen him raise people from the dead. And 50, 50 days later, all the people who had left were in a room together. The crowd of people that had decided they were following Jesus were all in a room together. And do you know how many were there? 120. That was it. You know, he'd spoken to thousands, ministered to thousands, he'd healed so many people, he cast demons out, he taught in prominent places. We see in the passage we just read, huge crowds gathering to him. He's doing amazing things. They, they're all pushing and clamoring to see him. And yet at the end of it all, at the end of it all, 120 people. You know, the population of Jerusalem at that time was reckoned to be about 600,000. Jesus' three-year ministry had left him with a following of 0.02% of the population of Jerusalem. Is that success? I'm not sure it is. Not by our measurement, anyway. Not by the way we measure church and we measure success. But you know what? I don't think crowds were Jesus' passion. I don't think that Jesus was all about drawing a crowd People gathered, people harangued him, people wanted to be near him. And he was so happy to minister to people. But also he was cautious about the adulation he received. And actually we see two things in this passage which suggest that actually for Jesus, drawing a crowd wasn't it. It wasn't the be all and end all. The first thing we notice is he tries to create some separation. You know, if you think about a rock concert, when you have a rock concert, Rock and roll concert. I sound so old when I say things like this. Um, a gig. <laughs> you, uh, you, you organize a concert and you want people to come. And actually, when you're the band, when you're the rock star, you want to be adored. And you put this event on and you want people to come and see you perform. And you want, you often see this picture here, you see rock stars, especially at big gigs and festivals, they love to just wade into the crowd. You've got all these people at the front clamoring to get near them and they'll go to them and they'll be hugged and Sometimes they'll even be carried off and crowd surf into the crowd. And it's all about receiving that attention and that worship. That's what it's all about. You want to gather the people who love you and you just want to be loved. Well, that wasn't quite how Jesus did it. Actually, in verse 9, we see Jesus did something different. He actually asked his disciples to get a boat for him and just push, him, push himself out into the water a little bit and just, just create a little bit of separation. He didn't want to be mobbed. He didn't want to be carried away and, and raised on everyone's shoulders and said, this guy's amazing. He wanted to just, just keep it a bit calmer than that. There's no sense that he wanted to, to, to revel in that adoration. There's no sense that he wanted to receive all that praise for himself and, and be the one glorified. Now, he cared for the people in the crowds. He, in that situation, he, he healed. He did amazing things for people. But actually, not just this story, but several stories in the Gospels we see interactions with Jesus and crowds which end with Jesus signing autographs? No. <laughs> Slipping away. Often he would just slip away. He'd even disappear sometimes. They'd say it's like he, he just vanished into thin air. He wasn't interested in the fame and the adulation and the clamor. He wanted, he didn't want to be that. Even, even one of the most famous stories of Jesus with a crowd, the feeding of the 5,000, 
And the feeding of the 5,000 is actually the feeding probably more like the 15, 20,000. There were 5,000 men there. That's how they counted large crowds in those days. They would count the men, but there would have been women and children there, probably taking it to 15, 20,000. That whole story comes about. Those people need feeding because Jesus has withdrawn into a distant, remote place, and they've followed him. And suddenly they're stuck in the wilderness, and they need feeding. Jesus wasn't trying to draw that crowd. He wasn't trying to get attention. He was trying to be solitary and get away. And they followed him. You see, Jesus, he wasn't about drawing the crowd. And we see it again in that Jesus actually almost actively sought to prevent the word of his fame from spreading. Almost to avoid further crowds from building up. We see verses 11 and 12. Whenever an evil spirit saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. That seems quite hard to understand, doesn't it? Here we've got the Messiah, the son of God, God's chosen king for all time. The man who can raise the dead, heal the sick, is good news to everyone. And they've got the crowds flocking to him. He's saving people left, right and center from sin, from death, from illness. And then he says, yeah, but don't tell anyone. I don't want you to tell everyone who I am. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I was thinking Pete Calcraft sat over there. Pete's a pharmacologist, and I don't know what that means either. But part of his job, certainly part of his old job, he was working on trying to discover cures for cancer. Is that right, Pete? Is that fair enough? Have I simplified it, oversimplified it? That was your job, wasn't it? You're trying to find drugs that would cure cancer. Can you imagine if Pete came to you one Sunday morning. Ah, oh, Pete, did you have a good week at work? Yeah, yeah, it was good. Um, pretty sure we've uh, we found the cure. It's quite simple, really. It was not, not, that, not that difficult at all. It's going to be easily produced, readily available, and it's got 100% success rate. This, this drug cures cancer. Like, Pete, that's amazing. It's going to change the world. No, 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 no. We're, we're not going to tell anyone. Um, <laughs> no, we're just going to keep it to ourselves, actually. It's, you know, it, it's just, just for us. We're just going to keep it. Like, you're like, Pete. What are you doing? You, you can save millions of lives. Surely we need to get this word out and tell everyone. Can you imagine? It's a strange analogy, I know, but it's that kind of thing. Jesus is the most exciting, incredible man, the answer to life itself. And he's saying to people, just keep it quiet, yeah? Don't, don't tell everyone. I don't, I don't want this to get out too far. Why? I think partly... He knew the time wasn't right for his identity to be revealed far and wide. We talked in that first week, the the talk I did, about him being the Messiah and how actually the Jews at the time were expecting a very different Messiah. They were expecting a warrior king, someone who's going to free them from oppression, who's going to battle the Roman occupiers and get rid of all that. And Jesus knew that if everyone decided that he was the Messiah and the word spread, they would almost try and turn him into this warrior king that he, he knew he wasn't to be. He didn't want that to get out of hand. He didn't want the, the crowd to get out of control in their fervor and make him something that he wasn't. And secondly, because as I said, he just wasn't about building crowds. He wasn't about building fame for himself. And he had a much more important thing to get on with. He already knew he was going to the cross. He already knew his destiny. He already knew where he was going and, going and what he needed to do. And crowds weren't part of the plan. And, you know, crowds, it's all very well building a crowd, but crowds can be flaky, they can be unreliable, and 
they can turn very easily. I, as an Everton fan, I know that. As an England fan, you know, if England lose that semi-final on Wednesday, you watch the optimism dissipate. <laughs> you watch the crowd turn. Crowds don't always help you, especially in a difficult moment. You look at John 6, for example. Jesus does some teaching to another crowd. He's teaching on, on, on his body and his blood. And actually, the result of that passage is, is the end of it. It says many people deserted Jesus that day. They didn't like what he said. They said to themselves, this is... This is really hard teaching. I'm, I'm out. Crowds are flaky. Crowds, crowds can very quickly desert you. So you see, I don't think it's about building a crowd. I don't think that what, that's what church is. I don't think that's what we're called to do here in, in Freedom Church Liverpool. That is not our goal. It's not our, our reason for being, to build a crowd. Let's read the next part of Mark and let's see if we can get some answers. Okay, if it's not about building a crowd, what is it? We'll read it off the screen again, guys, if you're happy to read with me. Mark 3, verses 13 to 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Here we get a sense of Jesus' radical approach to building a church that will last. Jesus' impact was not about building a crowd for a few years that he'd be around on earth. It was about making disciples that would last for an eternity. His ultimate goal was to die and then to secure eternal life for anyone who would believe in him then and at any point in the future. I like that little tweet. No one talks about the the miracle of Jesus' life that he had 12 close friends in his 30s. (laughs) I can identify with that one. But you know what? This is key. He didn't require a crowd. He needed a band of devoted, deeply sold out friends. It wasn't about building numbers. It wasn't about quantity. It was about people who he knew loved him and would go on this journey with him and would love him deeply and would go on to do amazing things in his name. As I say, crowds can be exciting and great, but when the going gets tough, they can disappear. Jesus looked for something much deeper. He wasn't looking for weekly attendance, but lifelong devotion. He doesn't want bums on seats watching. He wants disciples who get on the pitch and join in the game. And we see this intimate life-changing moment, this moment when he calls the disciples and says, you are the ones I want. Where does it happen? Does it happen in front of a crowd? No. He goes away up a mountainside. It happens in an intimate setting, away from the crowd, up a mountain. And you know, it's a simple call. Jesus called to him those he wanted, and they came. A personal, effective call. There's no no negotiation, no contracts, no prices. Jesus beckoned, and they went. And he appointed them. 
And he charged them with incredible responsibility. They were to go out and preach. They were good to go out and tell the truth about him. And they were even going to go out. He gave them authority to drive out demons in his name. And you know, the people that Jesus chose, these names, James, John, Peter, all these people, you know, he didn't choose highly educated, upper middle class, upper class, whatever people to do this work. 11 of the 12 people he chose were Galilean working class men, fishermen, tax collectors, people who, on the face of it, were unremarkable. Do you know, one of the men he chose was an educated Jerusalem-based Jew. Do you know who that was? It's Judas. The 11, you know, 11, they're just normal blokes. Normal, down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth types. And actually, people who have problems. People who were flawed. Isn't that amazing? You know, Peter was rash and quick-tempered. His solution when Jesus gets arrested, after spending three years with Jesus, to learn in the way of peace and love and love your enemy, he gets a sword out and chops the guy's ear off. Great work, Pete. You know, Simon, he's described as Simon, Simon the Zealot, the end of verse 18 there. You know, the Zealots, the Zealots were pretty fearsome people. They had a, a massive distrust and dislike of Roman rule. They were often plotting to overthrow the Roman government. He was, he'd be one of these sort of really politically activated guys, desperate to see a revolution happen. But Jesus said, I want you on my team. I want you close to me. I want you part of my, my, 11, my 12. James and John, he calls them sons of thunder. I don't think that's a compliment. Sons of thunder. It meant fervid and impetuous. You know, these were the guys who were probably fire and brimstone. These are the guys who get on a soapbox and tell you you're going to hell and not pull their punches. Not necessarily the nicest, most amenable people. And Jesus said, I want you on my team. I want you with me. These guys are not an inspirational bunch of people. But Jesus saw something that he loved and saw something that he could use and saw something that he could mold. He saw potential beyond the faults. And most of all, he saw devotion above flakiness. And in choosing these 12 guys and investing in them, he rejects the opportunity to be the heroic, crowd-surfing, rock-and-roll frontman. He chooses not to do it all himself. He chooses not to take all the glory and be the performer He said he gives these guys the opportunity to bear witness to him, to let their overwhelming love for him influence their communication of who he is. And he didn't do this by choosing them on this mountainside and then saying, go, done with me. No, the next three years of his life, he invests day after day in these guys. He prioritizes them. He gives them the best of his time. He ministers to them personally. He challenges them greatly. He dwells with them. He does life with them. He loves them. He gives them that invaluable gift of his time and his attention. And the result? Yeah, there was only 120 people left in that room at Pentecost. But very soon after, there was 3,000 added to them. And then we just see an explosion. Because it wasn't just about one guy being the hero. He invested in people who could take that message far and wide for him. And that's how the early church caught fire and took shape. You know, I think there's a challenge for us in this today. As I want, as I look to apply this, 
And I want to bring this with absolute bucket loads of grace and love. And I hope you hear the heart on this and, and no one gets upset by this. But I want to ask this question. Do we want to be, as Freedom Church, do we want to be a crowd of onlookers or a group of devoted Jesus, uh, Jesus followers on a mission together? I think that's the big question, not just for Freedom Church, for every church. What do we want to be? Do we want to be people who come and watch, come and consume, come and hear? Or do we want to be people who follow Jesus with our hearts, all of us, on a journey together? Because I think at times we are in danger of tending towards that crowd mentality. I do. And I think as leaders, as a leadership team, I think we have to hold our hands up at times and say, perhaps sometimes we've, we've fed that. I don't want to, in no way do I want to blow our trumpets as a leadership team, but we're fairly capable people. And we can do a lot of what it takes to make a church. We can preach and we can teach. We can organize. We can do the admin. We can set up and pack down. We can organize the kids away. We can put on weekends away. We can set up outreach events. We can do all that as a team. We can do that and we have done that. And we've also been blessed with loads of really good people who serve their hearts out on all sorts of rotors and they make our Sunday mornings work. And from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for that. We could not have come where we are today without that. And you know what? We've been able to gather, although there's quite a few missing today, a bit of a crowd. Not a huge one, but a growing crowd. And it is our privilege, the privilege of my life, to serve you guys. It really is. And we care deeply for you, and we love you, and we love doing it. But the goal of Freedom Church is not to attract a crowd that is happy to come along to church and just watch us minister to you guys. We don't want to come on a Sunday morning and preach and teach and sing a few songs and send you pack in back to live, live your lives as normal. Do you know, our goal is not that. That's not what we want. Our goal is discipleship. That is the great commission of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Jesus doesn't send his followers out to go and build churches and get busy doing lots of hard work and to build crowds up. He charges them to make disciples like he did. And we are here to help people to follow Jesus with all of their hearts. And then in turn, help them to help others follow Jesus with all their hearts. And in turn, help them to help others to follow Jesus with all of their hearts. It's not about us. We don't make disciples of ourselves. We're pointing people all the time to Jesus. Someone genuinely worth following. Someone who laid his life down for us. And now we lay our lives down for him. You know what? In 10 years' time, if Freedom Church is 500 people strong, and it's still us six leading the church, and some of you guys serving and helping, but never really growing beyond that, for some people that look like success. It doesn't excite me very much. That wouldn't be success in my eyes. Because what, what we could build is a church that looks successful with loads of bums on seats, but with us doing all the work, or most of the work. And that church, you know what? That church will last as long as the leadership team lasts. And then if the leadership team goes kabam, the church goes kabam. I don't, kabam's not a word. I just made that up. It means bang. It's Hebrew for bang. That's not our goal. Our goal is not to set a limit on the church that is only as big as the leadership team and its capacity. It's not what we want. I hope that's not what you want. I really do. 
Building church is God's job. It says it very clearly in scripture. I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. Our job is to make disciples. To see people grow. Who will then be disciples and then be disciple makers themselves. And that means investing in you guys. That means encouraging you guys, everyone, to pick up the mantle and to get involved and to go, actually, not to catch us up, but to go past us, to run beyond us. Actually, I believe, and this is, I'm borrowing this image again for Fillmore, it's about being rugby players and not rock stars. The gospel will not advance if all we do is put meetings on for you guys to come along to and hear us and watch us and to listen and, and for us to just hear your feedback. That's, that's not going to grow a church. That's not going to grow followers, disciples. I believe he wants us to play rugby. Do you know in rugby, I'm not really a rugby fan, I have to be honest, I'm a football fan. But in rugby, you cannot pass the ball forwards. You can run with the ball, you can carry it, but you're going to hit challenges, you're going to hit obstacles, you're going to get tackled. You're not going to be able to run the length of the pitch. You're going you're gonna to be stopped. You can pass backwards. And you pass it backwards to someone who's ready to take the ball off you and then run past you. And then what do you do? You pile in behind them. You drive them forward. That's what rugby is about. And that, I think, is a really good picture of discipleship. It's about handing the ball to someone who you then watch run past. And then you pile behind them and help them to go further than you ever could on your own. I hope that makes sense. We're looking for people in this church to take this and run with it. It's not about a leadership team or even about life group leaders. If you leave us to do the majority of the work, this church will only be big as big as our limited capacity. But if we all get involved in this game, I really believe we can see this city and this world, this nation, change mightily. We can cover more ground, reach more people, see more lives changed. It's time as leaders that we maybe perform a bit less and disciple a bit more. And I hope we hold our hands up and say, that's what we that's our heart. And if we haven't been doing that, we apologize. But we want to invest in you guys. We want to see you guys run past us. And do you know what excites me? It's not a church of 500 people with those guys at the center of it. What excites me is the idea of another five or 10 churches planted far and wide with people leading them, not us. You know, there could be five, 10, 15 people sat in this room right now who in a few years could be planted a new church and a new church, and a new church, and a new church. That's what gets me excited. It's seeing disciples raised up, and taking the ball, and running with it, and then passing it to someone else, and then running with it. I really believe we'll, we'll see so much more good come out of it than if we do it that way. And there's going to be opportunities. We want to invest in that, guys. So just one, one thing that will be coming up in January, we're going to be starting a leadership academy using some resources that uh, are available in New Ground. We're going to make that available to whoever wants to do it. It'll, be, it'll take a couple of years. It's a two-year course with uh, a monthly, um, monthly sessions. But it's a chance to just go deeper, to learn so much, to learn about leadership, to, to really invest in discipleship. And I would love to see as many people as possible from the church saying, yeah, I, I want to do that. I want to go deeper. I want to learn. I, I want to see what God's got for me. That's just one way. As I say, I'm aware this morning, I'm talking to a church where there are people who are tired and people who are serving their hearts on rotors already and, and might feel that they're at capacity. 
And we're so grateful for you. And we love what you do. Please don't hear anything other than that. But I think there's more to discipleship than filling rotors. And there's more to discipleship than putting Sunday morning services on well. It means not just doing the practical things. It means taking the time and the effort to learn to grow and go deeper with God. So if we're going to go on this mission together, we've intentionally got to invest in discipling people. And then those people need to disciple more people. And the fruit won't be a massive church with a small number leading, but it'll be multiple churches in multiple locations, led by teams of multiple devoted disciple makers. So what next? I hope you're seeing what I'm getting at here. The challenge is we too often reduce church in our minds to a set routine of Sunday mornings and the logistics that are involved in that. That is not discipleship. That is events management. Discipleship is a way of life, not a weekend activity. So I want to challenge us. If you're what you might describe as younger, I won't put an age bracket on it. Someone told me last night I looked like Jose Mourinho. And at first I was flattered, then I realized he's like 20 years older than me. Um, so I'm not going to define young and old. But I don't think I look like Jose Mourinho, by the way. It was dark. <laughs> you know, the challenge to some of our younger folk, get on the run. Come and get involved in this game. Come and be ready to take the ball and run past us. And let us help to push you forward. What do you have vision for? Where will your faith take you? What, what has God spoken to you that you've just put to one side? What has God said, you know, I want, you to, I want you to do this. I want to call you to this. And you've said, oh, yeah, in a bit. Life's a bit too busy right now. I've got too much on. What have you put to one side? Where is there a call to pick up a ball and run? Don't let your vision be decided by the size of the gift set that your leaders have. Don't look at them and think, well, they've got it covered. They don't need me. We do massively need each and every one of you. We want you to overtake us. We want you to run past us. And don't struggle on your own. Don't limit yourselves to spending time only in your small groups of peers and friends. You know, in this church, we're blessed to have so many older folk. And again, I'm not putting a number on it. But so many folk in this church who have walked with God faithfully for not just, not just years, but decades and decades and generations. So younger folk, I would say, you need to get spend time with these guys. Spend time with these folks and just ask them, what, is, what has kept you going? What can you teach me? What have you seen? What can you speak into my life? Tap their resources. Share in the wealth of the knowledge and the godliness they have. Let them disciple you. And older folk, you're not excused here. You're not off the hook. You know, some of you should still be running and trying to overtake us. And some of you may be preferring to sit back and take a deep breath and think, I've run my race. I don't think this is the time to stop. What could you still be leading in? What could you still be investing in people with? How could you still be supporting people and discipling people? You know, at the conference, I'm going to embarrass them again. They were embarrassed at the conference. But Dave Holden was preaching and he drew attention to Jack and Sheila. Dave Holden was in Jack and Sheila's life group 40 years ago. 
40. I know they don't look old enough. <laughs> and he said, it just warmed his heart and made him so excited to know that 40 years on, Jack and Sheila are still leading life groups. Are still just giving themselves to discipleship. I know there's people in this church who go and see Jack and Sheila regularly and just love spending time with them because they've just got so much to give. And I'd say to all of you guys who may or may not see yourself as older, you have so much to give, both in, in leading things and running past us, but also in just the next generation. The next people are going to take the ball and run with it. What can you give to them? Who could you be discipling? Who can you lend your weight to and push them forward? So where are you this morning? I think there's probably a few groups of people and you might be at different stages of this. If you're someone who, at the moment, you come to church and you receive and you go home. Is that what church is to you? I would ask the question of you this morning. Is it time to get out of the seat and get onto the pitch? Is it time to, to start trying to serve, to start trying to get your rugby kit on and start playing? And it could be a small step, serving tea and coffee, going on a kids' work, whatever it is, but something that says, I want to go deeper. I want to support this. I want to, I want to see what God's got for me. I want to step out. That's one group of people. Another group, if you're serving already, and you might be sitting there thinking, oh, but Chris, I'm already doing so much. I'm on five rotors. I don't get a Sunday off. I barely get to, get to hear a preach. I get that. I do. But I would ask, have you got comfortable in your routine? Have you limited yourself to the few things that you're doing, and that's your role, and you're not looking at what, at what else God might be calling you to? Could you be the next church planter? Could you be the one to say, actually, I feel God's calling me somewhere else, and I'm going to step up and do it? Could you be the next leader? Could you be the next, the next one to step out into God's call? Just recently, we've seen some really great examples. Uh, Jenny, just to pick on the Calcast again, um, it, when Chris brought the vision talk the other week, and he talked about you know our, our heart for social action and, and asking people what they got, what what they got passion for. And Jenny came straight back and said, "I've got passion for something. I want to try this, and we're going to try it, and we're, we're going to be sharing more about it. But we're going to be it's a ministry that's going to be helping families who've got kids at older hay." And we're going to be doing that. And, and Jenny just responded to a passionate. Like, Jenny is a busy, maxed out person. I know she hasn't got a lot of time or headspace. And yet she's heard God say to her, you could do something here. I'd love you to do this. And she stepped out and done it. And she's forming a team. And we'll, we'll tell you much more about that. But what else has God got for you? And then for those of us in the church who are already leading, who are already on that journey, you might be leading a life group or you're part of the leadership team or whatever it is, you're leading, you're leading Alpha or something like that. Great. That's brilliant. And now see who could you be raising up next? Who could learn from you? Who can you disciple? And that's one that I know is weighing heavy on me as a leader. Who can I be getting alongside? Who can I be bringing through? Who can I be passing the ball to? Sometimes, if I'm absolutely honest, I look around and I want to pass the ball to someone and there's no one there. And that's difficult. So it, it takes, it's, there's a two-way thing here. There's got to be a willingness to pass the ball on, but there's got to be people willing to step up and take the ball and run with it. That's, that's the challenge of this morning, and I know I'm speaking to a tired church at times. I hope you hear what I'm trying to get at. 
As I say, it's weighed heavy, heavy on me this week. I felt attack and anxiety about bringing this message. I know it could offend, I could put people off. And the possibility is you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, this isn't for me. I'm just happy not getting involved. I work hard all week. I'm not looking for more commitment. I don't want to be busier. Or you might be thinking, I already do loads of church. And these cheeky things ask me to do more. I'm on six rotors already. I'm tired and he's asking for more. Believe me when I say, this is not an appeal to make us busier. This is an appeal and an invitation to go deeper and to go further. That is what this is about. We're not interested in burning people out. We're not interested in making people suffer. We're not interested in making you resent church and and feel like you're too busy. We're interested in helping everyone in this church to grow and to, to reach the full measure of Christ has got for you. And to answer the calling that he might have put on your lives and to use the gifts that he's given you. You know, we talk about spiritual gifts a lot. Our spiritual gifts are never to puff us up. They're for the body. They're for the whole body. And we want to see this body <coughs> ministering to each other and stepping out just to close. This is the vision of new ground that we belong to. Raising leaders, impacting communities, planting churches, reaching nations. It's a big vision. And some of it, we've started, we've planted a church, we're here. We are a church now. First job done. But let's plant some more. Let's, let's spread this out. Let's get some more churches out of this church. Let's see new communities of believers forming. Raising leaders, this is what I'm talking about. We've got some work to do. We need some leaders to step up and we need to invest in them. Impacting communities, well, that's going to come from discipleship. It's going to come from discipleship. The more we disciple, the more people we raise up to be followers of him, the more we will impact our communities. We're not all called to be Harry Kane. We're not all called to be the goal scorer who gets all the headlines. But you know, Harry Kane couldn't score all those goals without the rest of the team behind him. Someone's going to have to be Jordan Henderson. I know no one wants to be Jordan Henderson. (coughs) Someone has to be Jordan Henderson. Someone has to be Kieran Trippier. Someone has to be every position on that team. We need each and every one of us to be discipling and to be serving what, they, what God has got for them in this church.